Well, join me in John chapter 16 as we continue our worship of our Savior this morning, John chapter 16, and we have been on quite a journey as we started in chapter 13, as Jesus began his final goodbye to his apostles, chapter 13, verse 1, continuing here through the end of chapter 16. This has been his long goodbye preparing his men for his departure. And we come this morning to the final few verses of this goodbye, this farewell. It's verses 29 through 33. John chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. Let's read the text, sit in our minds as we begin. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. For the last four chapters, Jesus has prepared his men for what he is about to experience in a matter of moments. His arrest, his unjust trial, his cruel crucifixion. In chapter 13, when this long goodbye began in the upper room, just before they are going to celebrate that final Passover meal, Jesus began preparing his apostles for his death. And you remember how this began. He untied his outer garments. He laid them aside. He wrapped a towel around his waist, all acts of a slave. He is the slave of Yahweh. And then he pours water into a basin. He takes his apostles' dirty feet. He scrubs the dirt off of them. This is an acted out parable of what Jesus was about to do for them on the cross. He would lay aside his own life like he lays aside his garments so that they might be clean spiritually. And yet, it's an act of service the apostles do not fully grasp. In fact, what does Peter say? He's reluctant to have Jesus wash his feet. It was at that point that Jesus then prepared his apostles for his coming arrest. He made that shocking announcement that one of his own would betray him. He quoted a psalm, Psalm 41, And Jesus says, I know the ones I have chosen, but something's going to happen. The scripture is going to be fulfilled. Here's how. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. The statement that led the apostles to question themselves, is it I, is it me? Also was a statement that caused Jesus' own heart to be filled with apprehension In turmoil and angst, Jesus became troubled in spirit. He sees his death like never before. 
And then he repeats himself, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And yet still, still, his apostles do not fully grasp what Jesus was telling them, not even when Jesus dismisses Judas from the meal. As you come to the end of chapter 13, Jesus begins to put more detail on his coming departure. He tells them, little children, I am with you a little while longer. So now here's the timing. It's soon, it's close. And then he adds, where I am going, you cannot come. He's not speaking of heaven at that moment. He's speaking of his cross. Where I am going to the cross, you cannot come. Only I can die that death. It's a place that only he could go. But this is another statement the apostles do not understand, which is why Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And then he says, I'll come with you. I'll help you. As you move into chapter 14, there's a transition from the troubled spirit of Jesus to now the troubled heart of the apostles. They're confused by Jesus' words, but they're beginning to recognize something's going to change. They're recognizing that Jesus is indeed going to leave them. And so you remember chapter 14, Jesus offers these men's words of comfort. 12 promises over 29 verses, 12 promises they could rest on when they see him arrested and put to death and buried, even resurrected. Promises that are some of the most jaw-dropping you will read anywhere in the Bible. He gives them the promise of an indwelling Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36 will happen. Gives them the promise of the Son and the Father through the Spirit making their home in us. Amazing promises them supernatural peace that the world cannot take away. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The message was this. Yes, I am leaving you, but you are not losing me. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you through the Spirit. That's the promise. And then as chapter 14 ends, in verse 31, Jesus takes his apostles with him. He leaves the upper room, change of scenery. Get up, let us go from here, Jesus says. It's now time to head towards Gethsemane. It's time to be overcome by the powers of darkness, which is why in chapter 15, Jesus' words move from promises of peace and comfort and hope and love to now warnings of coming trouble and certain hatred. Jesus is a realist. and He is well aware of the spiritual battle that wages in the heavenlies against his gospel. So in chapter 15, as Jesus and his apostles are making their way east, they're traveling through the streets of Jerusalem, heading towards the Garden of Gethsemane on the other side of the Kidron Valley. Jesus again prepares these men for the time between his death and his return. 
And he says it will be a time characterized not by love. Don't expect love from the world. Expect hatred, gospel anger. And so he issues a series of warnings, warnings of false gospels that would permeate the world once he leaves. Warnings of false believers who would claim to know him, confess him even, and yet in the end be burned like fruitless sticks in hell. You remember that parable. There'd be warnings also given about worldly hatred against Christ's people. So much so, the conclusion in chapter 16, you can see it, chapter 16, verse two, they will make you outcasts. They'll reject you. Don't expect love, expect hate. And some will even kill you. But Jesus, even here, is quick to cover those warnings of hate with promises of hope. This brings us into chapter 16. Look at verse 8. Jesus promises the apostles the Spirit's regenerating power. You're called to testify of Christ. The world will hate you, but the Spirit will regenerate hearts through your testimony. That's verse 8. And he, the spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Supernatural power promised. And then verse 14, Jesus promises of a coming New Testament, revelation through the spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, the apostles, those close to the apostles. He will guide you into all The truth, there's our hope. That's our security. And then you move into verses 23 and following. We've looked at this the last two weeks. Jesus also promises these men direct access, direct access to the sovereign Lord and loving Father through prayer. Another promise to cling to. Warning after warning, of what these apostles, all believers, will experience promise after promise of what we can rest upon. So all of this is describing the time between Jesus' crucifixion and the day he returns for his own. If you're looking for a portion of scripture to read again and again, read these last four chapters over and over again. It describes our time. Which brings us then to these final few verses, the final words of Jesus as he concludes this final farewell to his apostles. And once Jesus speaks these words, everything changes. He will offer his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. He will enter the garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18. He will be betrayed by one of his own, exactly how he said. He'll be bound by the Roman soldiers. He'll be forced to stand trial before evil priests of the land. Look at chapter 19. In chapter 19, Jesus will die. So everything's changing. Change is coming. Jesus knows this. So how will Jesus end this evening with his men? 
What will his final words be only moments before evil will have its way with him? It's a pertinent question for us today because we too see evil having its way in our world, right? We see it. We too are living in the warning sections, chapter 15, the warning sections that Jesus laid out so well, so clear. Question for us is this, how are we to respond then? How are we to respond? How are we to respond as evil runs rampant in our world? How are we to respond while we wait for Jesus's return? What's Jesus's answer? What's his guidance? Well, notice Jesus's words at the end of verse 33. Here's his answer. We are to respond in the same way the apostles were to respond when they see their master bound and beaten and crucified. We are to, verse 33, have peace. An untroubled heart, trouble spiraling, we have an untroubled heart and we are to take courage, live with an assurance, a, a gospel boldness. Have peace, take courage. Why? Why? Because, finish the verse, because Christ has overcome the world. That's why. Because he wins and we win. So where our peace and courage come from in the midst of sin and evil. That's the point of this passage. It's the point of the last four chapters. Have peace, take courage. This is who we have been called to be in our world. We are to be believers who live in calm assurance, in calm assurance that Christ's victory has been won. Let's ask the question, does the world see that in us? We're to be believers who speak the gospel with a bold confidence, unafraid of this world's anger toward us. In fact, look at verse 33. Let's use Jesus's words. Unafraid of the tribulation, the pressure that's coming. Again, ask the question, does that describe us? Do we have that calm assurance? Do we have that bold confidence? Is our heart filled with that peace that Jesus has promised here? Or are we filled with anxiety? by what we see swirling around us. It's there. Are we fearful by the unknown of what could happen, is happening in our day? Are we courageous? Are we bold for the gospel? Or are we silent about our Lord? For whatever reason, are we silent? Silent maybe because of apathy, maybe because of fear? Again, back to verse 33, peace and courage in the midst of a sinful and spiraling world is the drive. It is the drive of this passage, the drive of this final farewell. And Jesus begins to instill or ends this by making three declarations, three declarations, three peace-giving, courage-building declarations to his apostles. We can apply them to our own lives. Let's see how this unfolds. Again, we'll draw application 
as we go. Begin with declaration number one. How does Jesus instill this peace and this courage? Declaration number one, Jesus affirms his apostles' faith. Jesus affirms his apostles' faith. Start in verse 29. His disciples said, they break their silence. It has been a relief because the last two chapters, they haven't spoken. They always get themselves into trouble when they speak, right? Last two chapters, Jesus is the only one who's been talking. Well, here in verse 29, they break their silence. Notice what they say. Lo, behold, look, Jesus. Now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. We're finally getting it, Jesus. We're finally understanding, grasping all that you're saying. Of course, they do not understand the fullness of what Jesus has said. That will only happen after the Spirit indwells them and illuminates their mind to the truth. We saw that back in John 14. But they are beginning to grasp some things. This is good. What are they beginning to understand? Verse 30, now we know that you know all things. We believe you can be trusted. It's the beginning of faith, isn't it? You can be trusted. We don't know all the particulars of what you are saying. Our mind is still foggy about the details that you're giving us. But we believe that you can be trusted. We can believe, John 16, 7, that you're leaving us for our good. Again, we don't understand it all. We can believe that you're leaving us for our good. We can believe that you will turn our sorrow into joy. We believe that you are providing access to your Father through prayer. We believe that. You can add all the other promises Jesus made at this point. You can be trusted. It's the beginning of faith. And, continue the verse, there is no need for anyone to question you. We don't need you to explain yourself anymore. We don't need to keep putting our foot in our mouth asking you questions. We believe you. You're trustworthy. You know what is best. Why? Continue verse 30. Because we believe that you came from God. Your words are God's words. We believe that you share the same nature as God. We believe that you share the same name as God. We believe that you came from the presence of God, John 1, 1. We believe that you share the same eternality as God, John 1, 3. That you are God in human flesh, John 1, 14. We believe... This is similar to their confession back in chapter six. We believe that you are the Holy One of God or their confession in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's making sense, finally. They declare his deity. Jesus has said this about himself. John six, he is the one who is from God, from the presence of God, John A, I proceeded forth and have come from God. 
In fact, look at verse 28. That's how it ends. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. So the apostles now declare their faith. They declare the deity and sonship of Jesus. This is why they, this is why we can believe his promises. They are promises from God himself. He's trustworthy. So Jesus affirms their confession. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? If you have a New American Standard Bible, you can see that this is a question. That's how it's translated. It's more in the derogatory sense as if Jesus doubts their faith. Oh, you think you believe? That's the idea there. But you can translate it as a statement of fact in the sense of, yes, you do believe. Yes, I affirm your faith. That's how I take it. Jesus is affirming, in the positive sense, the apostles' confession. He's affirming them here. Why do I take it that way? Well, look back to verse 27. Because Jesus just stated that they did believe. The Father loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. You do believe this. In fact, look at chapter 17. 17 and verse seven, this high priestly prayer. Notice what he says, speaking of his apostles. Now they have come to know and they don't know fully everything, but they have come to know what? That everything you, Father, have given me is from you. For, verse eight, the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them. They believed them. They trust them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. That's what the apostles confess in verse 30. So Jesus is affirming their faith. You do believe. You confess rightly. Now let's ask this question though. Take a step back. How does this affirmation instill peace and courage within these men? How does this instill peace and courage within these men? Here's the answer. Because Jesus is assuring them that every promise he has given them throughout this night, every promise, he's assuring them that every promise is theirs. They've come to him in faith. They believe in faith. Every promise is theirs through faith and it will never be taken away, ever. His promised sacrifice and all that entails is theirs. His death will be theirs. Why? Because they have believed him. They have come to know him in saving faith. Go back to chapter 14, the promise of his father's house. That promise is theirs. That's their future. Why? Because through faith, they're united to Jesus. The promise of the spirit is theirs. The promised access to the father is theirs. Spirit's testifying power to change the heart of an unbeliever is theirs. The Father's love is theirs. 
promise of Christ indwelling them through the Spirit, that's theirs. Every promise is theirs. Why? Because they believe Christ. They've come to him in saving faith. And thus they've been united to Jesus. We looked at that last week. They're united to Christ. His words are their words. His promises are their promises. Let's put it in the context here of, of our day. If we have come to Jesus in saving faith, if we are truly united to Christ, then this same promise applies to us. Every promise Jesus has given is ours. Every promise. Go back and read chapters 13 through 16. And if you want more than that, you can go into the New Testament and add thousands of promises. And all of them are ours. Why? Because we are united to Christ through faith. And thus, if Christ can be trusted, if he is, back in verse 30, our confession of who he is, if that is true, that he has indeed come from God, he is God in human flesh, if that is true, and every one of Jesus' promises is true and belongs to us, and here's the question, why would peace not fill our hearts? Why would peace not fill our hearts? We can answer that question. It's because we don't know the promises. Why would we not be courageous for our savior? Again, we can answer that question because we're not resting on the promises, applying those promises. Jesus's message is this. Have peace. No matter where this world is going, have peace because you have not been left as orphans. The spirit of truth is in us forever. And have courage because Christ has prepared his father's house for us. Our eternity is secure. And he will come again and receive us to himself. And he will one day change our sorrow into joy. Why? Because he is trustworthy and we're united to him through faith. It's the principle of Romans 11. I love it. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. God's promise to us is forever. He will never take those promises away. That's where peace and courage is found, the irrevocable gifts of God. And he is always faithful. He is always faithful to his word and to his people. And the point here is when we believe that, when we believe that peace will fill our hearts and we will be courageous for his gospel, when we believe that, Again, it's back to the question, do we believe? Do we believe? There's a second declaration Jesus makes here. And understand the flow, the flow of the passage and Jesus' words is important. It's key for Jesus to affirm his apostles' faith first in verse 31. That is key because he is about to assure them or at least announce to them that they are going to flee him. They don't realize what's coming. 
But he knows that they are about to commit the worst sin, mark it, the worst sin a follower of Christ can commit. The worst sin they're about to commit is what? Denying their Lord and abandoning him. So it leads into declaration number two. Jesus announces his apostles' failure. Jesus announces his apostles' failure. Verse 32, Jesus is a realist. Behold, an hour, sovereignly appointed hour, my hour, behold, an hour is coming. It's imminent. And here's how close it is. Jesus can say it has already come. That's how close. It's true. Remember, Judas has already reported to the chief priest where Jesus would be that night. And as Jesus is talking, the religious leaders are requesting Roman guards to accompany them, to arrest Jesus. The hour of the apostles' failure has been set in motion. And Jesus tells them, you will be scattered. You will flee. You will abandon me. It is true, the apostles possessed saving faith. That is true. That has been affirmed by Jesus in verse 31. But it was weak faith. It was untested faith. And it is soon to be faltering faith. At the end of chapter 13, Jesus predicted Peter's desertion. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times here now. Jesus broadens it out. You are all gonna leave me, all of you. You'll be scattered. The word scattered here is important. It's chosen by Jesus on purpose. Jesus is referring back to a prophecy in Zechariah, Zechariah 13. This has been prophesied of what will happen. This is not catching him off guard. This is in the sovereignty of this time. Zechariah 13, seven, strike the shepherd. Jesus being the shepherd, Messiah, strike the shepherd. What's the result? The sheep, the apostles will be scattered. That's coming. So once again, Jesus, as he's done throughout the night, he's emphasizing sovereignty. He's emphasizing control over all evil. Again, the apostles do not know what is in store for them. They have no idea. They do not recognize the weakness of their faith. And you remember what Peter said. Remember that, this is earlier in the night. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. He talks about the apostles And Peter says, Jesus, I know that all the other apostles are going to leave you. I mean, I've seen them. They're a bunch of bozos. Okay, but not me, Jesus. They have no idea how weak their faith is. They have no idea how strong the enemy is, how strong the temptation will be. Jesus does, why? It's prophesied in the Old Testament. It's predicted here by Christ So he says, you will be scattered. You fulfill Zechariah 13 and scatter, they do. Mark records it this way. And they all left and they fled. 
They leave and they flee. It's the very opposite of peace and courage. Look at verse 32. These men are said to flee each to his own home. It's referring to where they were staying while in Jerusalem. We see this in John chapter 20 when the apostles lock themselves in a room. Why? For fear. It's not courage. And they don't have peace for fear of the Jews. And then Jesus adds in verse 32, you will leave me alone. You will leave me alone. The word leave there, it's the same word used to describe the disciples leaving their nets and leaving their family to follow Jesus at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. They left all, they left all to follow him. And now as Jesus's ministry ends, as fear overwhelms them, they leave him. They're scattered. And what we will see from here on out, Jesus will stand alone. He said it back in chapter 13, where I go, you can't come. He will stand alone. You'll stand alone before Annas and Caiaphas. He'll stand alone before Herod and Pilate. He will hang alone on the cross with very few watching. To put in the words of one commentator for Jesus, it would be an hour of crisis. For the disciples, it would be a time of regrettable failure. Well, where's the application here? Well, it's great application because like the apostles, we too fail, don't we? Let's be honest. We fail. We cower too in fear when gospel opportunities come our way. We might not leave physically, but we become silent. Let the terror of the unknown fill our hearts, push out Christ's peace. We do not in faith respond to this evil world system with calm assurance, with gospel courage. We respond with anger and complaint and bitterness and worldly answers. We like to rail against the apostles, don't we? We are so much like them. But the point Jesus is making here is this, though the apostles' faith will falter, though the apostles' faith will falter, and though our faith will falter, God's promises for his people will never be revoked. His promises will never be revoked. God is always faithful. We are not always faithful. God is always faithful. He is so unlike us. In fact, let's connect Jesus' prediction here of the apostles' failure with what he's promised now. Look at verse 27. Look at the promise. The Father himself loves you. Yes, you will flee and you will scatter. But the Father will never withdraw his love from us. Connect that. He loves us. Why? He loves us because we're united to his Son. Yes, we sin. The Father still loves us. Let's connect the apostles' coming sin, even our sin, to Zechariah's prediction. 
We can believe this. When sin abounds, when sin abounds, the Father is doing something we cannot comprehend fully. When sin abounds, the Father is actually using that sin. He is even using his people's failures to carry out his divine design. We cannot comprehend that fully. His promises are irrevocable. He is always faithful to his word and his people. In a world filled with sin and evil, a world in which we cave far too often, don't we? We cave far too often. Jesus says, take courage and find peace in Christ because your failure, our fear will never negate God's faithfulness and love for you. And he will even use the most heinous of sins to fulfill his perfect design. Take courage, be at peace. Brings us to the third peace-inducing, courage-instilling declaration here. This is how he wraps everything up. These last four chapters. Declaration number three, Jesus assures his apostles of his certain victory. He assures his apostles of his certain victory. Judas is on his way and he is possessed by Satan himself. And he's coming with Roman guards and evil priests. And the apostles will soon abandon him and scatter. And amazingly, Jesus knows all of that and he does not end his final farewell on a note of failure. Oh, he could he doesn't end on a note of failure because he ends on a note of what he is going to do and what he is going to accomplish. The final note is Christ will have the final victory. He will win this battle over sin and Satan and death. Finish verse 32. Yet I am not alone. I love that. I am not alone because the Father is with me. You'll abandon me but the Father will never abandon me. He will welcome my prayers for faithfulness in chapter 17. He will send his angel to strengthen me in the garden, Luke 22. He will continue to give me his spirit for endurance. This is Hebrews chapter chapter nine. How does Christ go to the cross and remain faithful? Here's how through the eternal spirit, the gift of the father to the son, through the eternal spirit, the son offers himself without blemish to God. He won't remove his spirit. He'll accept my sacrifice for sin. He will resurrect me from the dead. And he will welcome me back to the glory I had before the foundation of the world. He will seat me at his right hand. You're leaving me, the Father's not leaving me. Again, application here, let's put it this way. Christ's victory on the cross and his victory over sin and Satan and thus through him our victory over sin and Satan is not contingent upon our faithfulness. And I praise the Lord for that because there would be no victory. No, it's contingent upon 
his faithfulness, his power, his offering of himself. And thus Jesus can say in verse 33, these things I have spoken to you. Everything that has come before, every promise, I have given you all of these promises so that in me, underline that, in me, for all who are united to Christ through saving faith, for all who make that confession of the apostles in verse 30, even though that faith may be weak and will be faltering, even still, Jesus says, if you are united to me through faith, you may have peace. Not only spiritual peace with God, though that is implied here, it's reconciliation, but here it's the settled peace of heart. You may have peace because you are clinging to the promise that the sovereign king is always working out his redemptive plan. Always, despite our failures and even through our failures. And we can have peace because we're resting on the truth that the father loves us and will never abandon us. We can have peace. He'll never withdraw his love from his son. He will never withdraw his love from us. but it's a settled piece of heart that shows itself in action. Continue verse 33. It's peace coupled with courage. Peace coupled with courage. In the world, you have tribulation. You have distress. You have sorrow. You have persecution. You have affliction. Think of everything Jesus said in chapter 15. You'll experience pressures intended for you to give up your faith. You'll have threats meant to frighten you into silence about your savior. That should come as no surprise. No surprise when it happens. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, take courage. Take courage. Take gospel courage. Because, verse 33 I, it's emphatic, I myself, the one we're united to, I have overcome. Nikao, I'm the conqueror. I'm the overcomer. I'm the victor. I've prevailed over the world. I've conquered the world. The evil world system ruled right now by Satan. that evil world system that will overtake Jesus in just a matter of moments, Jesus says, I've conquered it. I've conquered it. It's as good as done. He's looking towards the cross. He's looking towards the resurrection and ascension, even his return. And the application is because I will defeat sin, your eternity is secure. Because I will defeat Satan. All of his threats have been defanged. Security is ours. Security is ours. Eternity is ours. Victory is ours. This is why John can write in 1 John. This is application. You'll see the connection. 
First John chapter five, verse four, John writes this, whatever is born of God, whatever is born of God overcomes. Same word, conquers. Whatever is born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is the victory? What assures us of victory? Answer, our faith. It's our faith. Why? Because our faith in Christ means Christ's victory over sin and Satan is our victory over sin and Satan. His security is our security. His promises are our promises. In fact, this is how John ends the last of his writings. Again, you will see the connection. This is how the book of Revelation ends. Do we remember how the book of Revelation ends? Like so many people are saying, I need to know the intricacies of Revelation in the middle part. Fast forward to the end of it. Like that's where it's good. <laughs> Revelation 21.7, he who overcomes, same word, he overcomes this evil world system through faith in the Satan conquering son. He who overcomes will what? Will inherit these things, the glorious eternal state, the kingdom. He will inherit these things. Watch. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That's how the book ends. Through faith, through faith in Christ, his victory is our victory. His home, his kingdom is our home, our kingdom. And thus Jesus says in the midst of tribulation, that's the word, the pressures, when gospel hatred grows, when the pressure builds to give up your faith, to stay silent about the gospel in a world of darkness and evil, Jesus says, take courage. Be courageous and bold because Satan has no hold on you. He has no victory over you. Your eternity is secure. Our salvation has been purchased in full. Our heavenly home has been prepared and the spirit has sealed us forever. Why? Because our savior has won. Our savior has conquered. That's how Jesus ends this final farewell. And in chapter 17, he will seal every one of these promises with a prayer to his father. One commentator puts it this way, the enemies of Jesus can take our possessions, our loved ones, our freedoms, our rights, and our jobs, but they cannot take our peace and our courage. Why? Why not? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that means he has conquered. He has overcome the world. And we're in him. Through faith, we are in him. Father, we are thankful for the promises that you have given to us. And we are thankful that our savior has conquered. And Lord, we confess that we forget that very often in our life that our words do not show that we believe that victory. 
confess that we put our hope in so many worldly things and worldly ways. Confess that we are not courageous when we need to be. Not courageous about temporal things, but courageous about the gospel that saves. Courageous because the Spirit uses those words to change the heart. We confess that to you. Lord, may you give us obedience. May you give us a faith that rests in your promises and that we would, through that faith, experience assurance and peace and courage. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.